Within the expansive landscapes of North America, hidden beneath layers of soil and time, lies evidence of an enduring people. With a blend of ingenuity and indomitable determination, they traverse the boundless plains, embarking on a relentless quest for their quarry. The ancient behemoths their forebearers once relied on for sustenance had vanished, replaced by a colder world, where the resilient bison emerged as their primary prey. This is the story of the Folsom culture, an ancient people whose spirits continue to resonate across the majestic mountains, vast plains, and deep canyons of this remarkable land. Our very American story begins during a period of turmoil in the United States. Deep ideological and political divisions split the nation, leading to the inevitable bloodshed that was the Civil War. After four years of costly battles, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse marked a turning point, leading to the eventual end of the Civil War along with the beginning of a new era in American history, one that promised freedom and the long-awaited abolition of slavery for millions of African Americans. One of these enslaved souls was poor George McJunkin. Born in Texas in 1851, it wouldn't be until the age of 14 that he would become free. The son of a blacksmith in rural Texas, he quickly learned many skills. He built his name working across several ranches, hunting buffalo, and riding broncos, all while teaching himself how to read and write in English and Spanish. The future American Western Hall of Famer also developed a deep passion for history and became an amateur archaeologist. While George was living and working as a foreman at the Crowfoot Ranch in Folsom, New Mexico, there was a considerable flood. In the aftermath, McJunkin discovered a riverbed with bison remains as well as stone points. Due to his experience as a buffalo hunter and his interest in archaeology, McJunkin was likely aware that these bison remains were not contemporary bison. As the world would later find out, these were bison antiquus, an extinct species of bison about 25% bigger than our modern variety. Because McJunkin was a seasoned naturalist, he knew that human spear points associated with this extinct form of bison was highly significant. Notably, McJunkin also decided not to dig up or otherwise disturb the ground of his new discovery. This is important to emphasize, considering the potential wealth involved in selling archaic remains. Up to this point in history, the position of the scientific establishment and the US government was that humans had only been in the New World since 6,000 years ago. So what was this? Immediately after George McJunkin's discovery, he sent evidence from the site to several paleontological organizations. According to the scientific establishment, Mr. McJunkin did not have anything to offer. Indigenous people had not lived in antiquity like Europeans had. A decade later, him and Ivan Shoemaker, who was the teenage son of the Crowfoot Ranch's owner, began digging. They found more bones of giant bison and a very distinct fluted point. Finally, they had their smoking gun and they quickly sent their evidence to the Denver Museum of Natural History. The following spring, the museum finally sent paleontologist Harold Cook and they did some exploratory digging. Unfortunately, McJunkin would pass away in 1922 at the age of 71. Four years later, the first thorough excavation of the site began. Jesse Figgins and Harold Cook would discover a fluted point buried directly between the ribs of a bison antiquus. Instead of extracting the point from the bones, Figgins cut around the bone and preserved the entire sample. He brought the sample back to the Denver Museum where it can still be seen today. This find was so significant because it undeniably proved that the ancestors of Native Americans have lived in the Americas since the Pleistocene. Three years later in 1929, a young man named James Whitman heard of the Folsom story and decided to explore the Blackwater Draw near Clovis, New Mexico. Here. James discovered fluted points associated with mammoth bones. These points were distinct from the points found in Folsom, though they were both fluted. They were also both associated with Pleistocene megafauna, attesting to their deep antiquity. This very American story of a former slave becoming a cowboy and an amateur archaeologist led to the discovery that would vastly change the history of this great continent and our understanding of those who came before. The original Folsom site in Folsom, New Mexico is a huge site. It is likely a butcher site. The remains of 32 bison antiquus were found along with projectile points. The Folsom site is radiocarbon dated to 12,500 years before present. The humans that occupied this site were an ancient people whom we now call the Folsom people, or people of the Folsom tradition, 
which existed roughly between 12,800 and 12,000 years ago. A little note on dates in this video. I will be using BP, meaning before present. This is the amount of time before the year 1950. When I say years ago, I mean years before this date. Anyways, the Folsom were mainly a plains-dwelling nomadic people. Their range extended over the entire Great Plains region of North America, but also including much of the Rockies and East areas such as the Great Lakes region. To truly understand the origins of the Folsom culture, we must first discuss the deep antiquity of people in the North American continent. One of the biggest mysteries persisting in archaeology is how long humans have been in the Americas. Early on, it was not thought that people of North America had even been here during the last glacial period. The discovery of Folsom and Clovis points in direct association with some of these extinct animals helped change this notion. The advent of various dating methods confidently proved that humans have at least been in the Americas prior to around 13 to 14,000 years before present. Though beyond this, evidence becomes extremely scarce. Fortunately, with modern technology and an increased interest in the subject, archaeological sites have found dates older than 15,000 years ago across various regions of the Americas. One extremely controversial site which contains mastodons which may have been butchered has dated to 130,700 years ago. However, like I stated, the site is very controversial and certainly no consensus can be confidently made at this time. The next oldest evidence supporting humans in the Americas would be the White Sands fossil footprints. In 2021, these footprints were dated to between 21 and 23,000 years ago. A recent 2023 study confirmed these controversial results, making it potentially the oldest evidence we have of humans in the Americas. This actually correlates with our genetic evidence which suggests that all Native Americans descend from a single wave from Siberia between 20 and 23,000 years ago. And no, these people did not migrate from Europe as some people suggest. The Solutrean hypothesis is largely disproved, especially based on genetic evidence. Considering I still get comments about this all the time, perhaps I will make a video about it in the near future. Anyways, some of you may have heard of the idea of Clovis first. The idea that the Clovis people, appearing around 13,500 years ago, were the first to migrate into the Americas. Of course, now we have evidence to show people have been here much longer, but the idea was held for so long due to the lack of evidence from earlier periods. Though we have discovered more evidence, we still know relatively little about pre-Clovis people. What we do know is that between 16,000 and 13,000 years ago, their population grew enormously, about 60-fold. This population boom is indicative of expansion into new territories. This creates the possibility that the Clovis people may have come to the Americas in a separate wave unrelated to those who made the White Sands footprints. Whoever these people were, they left behind very little archaeologically and seemingly nothing genetically. Whatever the case, the new Clovis culture would develop between 14 and 13,000 years ago and would rapidly spread. The Clovis culture existed for around 1,000 years but was really only dominant for around 500 years. Their subsequent decline would occur during the onset of the Younger Dryas period, 12,800 years before present, which was a sudden return to colder glacial conditions. This would result in the dissipation of the Clovis culture and the creation of a diverse array of new cultures. One of them, of course, being the Folsom culture. The oldest Folsom sites date to around 12,800 years ago, while the latest Clovis sites date to around 12,700 years ago. Understanding this transition and overlap has been difficult for scholars. Some scholars argue that the Folsom culture represents a regional or temporal variation of the Clovis culture. Others suggest that it could be a distinctive cultural group that adopted and modified the fluted point technology from the Clovis tradition. Clovis points are fluted but they are distinctly longer and more dense, presumably better to hunt animals such as mammoth and mastodon. Folsom points are typically smaller and thinner. Though they are both stone points, they are quite different in form and function. It is undeniable that the Folsom tradition represents a wholesale change in technology and foraging behaviors from their Clovis predecessors, but were they related genetically or culturally? Bayesian modeling of Clovis and Folsom radiocarbon records indicates a 200-year multi-generational transition. Todd Suravel, Briggs Buchanan, David Kilby, and Jason LaBelle posit a 200-year overlap. Examples of sites overlap in northern Wyoming and northern Oklahoma. Mainstream archaeologists accept that there was indeed an overlap, but dispute over the length of that overlap. Suravel and colleagues theorized a diffusion and eventual replacement of Clovis by Folsom people. 
However, we don't know exactly why the Folsom flourished in place of the Clovis. Scholars think that the Folsom way of life had won the battle of ideas in the Paleo-Indian world. They estimate that the overlap is anywhere from 80 to 400 years with a median of 210 years, at least in the southwest. Perhaps Folsom is simply a reconfiguration of Clovis, the younger generation endeavoring to innovate the long-standing traditions. The difference in spear points specifically likely reflects the changing of faunal targets. No longer mammoth hunters, they were adapting to new prey. During the Younger Dryas, the average temperature dropped, though it heavily varied by region. The Great Plains became much colder with tundra-like conditions except for in the south. The Rocky Mountains, on the other hand, were isolated from much of the cold and actually saw increased precipitation with the expansion of glaciers. This dynamic of cold, wind-slept plains along with warmer mountain refuges will be important to mention later. Along with this change in temperature, many megafaunal species march towards extinction. There is evidence that megafaunal species were already declining and some may have even been extinct before the Younger Dryas started. The cause for such a change is still debated, and fortunately for you all, I made an extremely detailed 45-minute video on the topic. And no, a comet does not appear to have been the likely cause. Anyways, within a few hundred years, many prey items of the old Clovis had mostly vanished off of the landscape and the landscape itself had changed vastly. The discovery of the original Folsom artifacts in correlation with Pleistocene megafauna put archaeologists on alert for the discovery of similar artifacts elsewhere. This would be significant because it would prove that these regions had also been occupied since the Pleistocene. Folsom artifacts were quickly identified throughout much of the high plains and the mountains. This is representative of the fact that the highest concentrations of Folsom points can be found in south-central Texas and along the eastern Rockies. It has since been established that their range spilled from eastern Texas possibly all the way up into northern Mexico, into Arizona and up all the way into southern Canada. No remains have been uncovered from California or other west coast regions. Their easternmost extent has been a bit of a mystery. Early on, some Midwestern archaeologists did not believe that people had been in the region during the Pleistocene, perhaps because of the fact that glaciers covered much of the region. But during Folsom times, the glaciers had retreated drastically, opening up much of the Great Lakes region. Folsom points in these regions were often explained as weaponry used by later groups unrelated to southwestern Folsom contexts. Despite these early opinions, more points were discovered, and the Folsom tradition and timeline began to be understood more completely. Now there is no doubt that the Folsom people range this far east, and there are valuable insights to learn from these remains. We know that they inhabited parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois at their easternmost. In Minnesota and Iowa, 17 points have been identified in each, while Wisconsin is home to a total of 142 points. That is quite a significant number considering that an estimated 2,500 points have been found in total. Comparing their range to the range of the Clovis culture, we can clearly see that the Folsom appear to have been limited by the Great Plains region. As mentioned earlier, populations of Mammoth, Macedon, and other Pleistocene megafauna may have lived during much of the Folsom time and even later. Some evidence suggests that mammoths and other animals such as horses may have lived in isolated regions more than 10,000 years ago. What we know for sure is that their populations would have only been a fraction of what they were before and they were no longer a reliable food source. For one reason or another, the bison had triumphed and presumably their population had skyrocketed. The Paleo-Indians of the time, whether they had an effect on the final collapse or not, had a switch to mainly hunting bison. We see this directly at Folsom sites. Bison are directly associated with their points. Bison are tough animals, but they are no mammoth. Smaller, thinner points were efficient at penetrating and causing lethal damage. Clovis points certainly could take down a bison. Hunt Primitive right here on YouTube did it with Clovis points. But Folsom points with their small cross-section can be considered more efficient killing tools. The Folsom culture is most well known for the points they made. But what exactly makes a Folsom point so special? Beyond other aspects of their excellent craftsmanship, their flutes are truly magnificent. This fluting runs almost the whole length of a traditional Folsom point called a channel flake or channel flute. Achieving this thickness without channel flakes requires very skilled and time-intensive flint napping. But with the removal of just two flakes, these skilled craftsmen created an even stronger point. Though it was no easy task. Removing such a long flake from an already thin point requires careful preparation and perfect execution. Even modern flint nappers with 20 plus years of experience have great difficulty matching the skill of the ancients. 
There are many ways the Folsom people could have looted these points. It is possible that simple direct percussion was used. This means just hitting the flute platform with a percussor directly. Though this is very challenging and quite inconsistent, indirect percussion may have been used for more consistent results. This involves striking a tool which is in contact with the actual stone preform. The difficulty and inconsistency of these two methods have caused many to speculate that the Folsom Nappers may have used some kind of jig in order to create such magnificent projectiles. Multiple designs have been made with primitive technology in attempt to replicate how they may have done it. Some designs utilize leverage while others incorporate body weight. Here is a video of Master Flintnapper Tony Soares fluting some Folsom points with the special jig he made. It is hard to convey just how difficult it is to make a preform like this and let alone fluted perfectly. Creating such large flakes requires hitting and pushing off a flake with a lot of force. This often results in the points accidentally breaking during the fluting process. In fact, about 40% of Folsom points broke before they could ever be hafted. The question remains open to why they even fluted their points in the first place. One of the most common explanations is that these flutes aided in hafting. The flake scars left behind channel flakes not only make it thin, but are also the perfect shape for placing the point in a haft. It is likely that these points were supported on both sides by a sturdy but thin haft. Let's take a break from the video to talk about today's sponsor, MyHeritage. MyHeritage is the number one family history service. As a child, I distinctly recall asking my parents where our ancestors are from. We are American after all. They didn't really know. Even some of my grandparents did not know if their grandparents had come from Yugoslavia, Austria, or Germany. To find some answers, I partnered with MyHeritage. I entered some basic details about my family and it automatically searched through 19 billion documents. With the Instant Discoveries feature, I was able to add entire branches of my family tree with a single click. Suddenly, I was telling my parents about their great-grandparents. I was able to learn about the specific towns my Norwegian and German ancestors came from. Towns which I can go visit in the future to try to imagine what life might have been like prior to their migration. I was also able to find photos of these great pioneers that I will unfortunately never get to meet. My heritage even has built-in features to bring life and color to these photos. I think all of us should know where we came from to get a greater appreciation for the lives of our ancestors. I want to invite you to start building your own family tree with a special deal. Sign up for a 14-day free trial and enjoy all the amazing features MyHeritage has to offer. If you decide to continue your subscription, you'll get a 50% discount. Huge thanks to MyHeritage for sponsoring the channel, I truly learned a lot about my own family with the service. Now let's get back to the video. Many researchers believe that these points were specifically adapted for the hunting of bison. But these were not the bison of the American West. These were the bison of the Pleistocene. Four species of extinct bison once roamed the Americas. Unfortunately, bison latifrons, the largest bison of all time, weighing 4,400 pounds or 2,000 kilograms, went extinct around 22,000 years ago. So the Folsom never got to hunt them. But they did hunt three other bison species far bigger than our modern variety. As mentioned earlier, Bison Antiquus was found alongside the first Folsom points. This species was as much as 25% bigger than modern bison, weighing up to 3,500 pounds or 1,600 kilograms. Antiquus was one of the most common animals during the Pleistocene and is ancestral to modern bison. Two other bison species, Bison Priscus and Bison occidentalis, were also larger than modern bison, but not by much. Either way, their pure bulk and aggressive tendencies would have made them formidable prey for Folsom hunters. Their thin and sharp points were perfect for the job. In fact, due to the thinness of Folsom points, they're more likely to break than others such as Clovis points. However, this effect might have been desired. If the projectile encountered bone or cartilage, it would often break, creating a new, even sharper edge on the tool and filling the wound with shards of stone. Many discovered points had been broken and then reshaped at least once. It is likely that Folsom points and even Clovis points were hafted at the end of atlatl darts. Atlatls or spear throwers are tools that use leverage to throw a projectile with much greater velocity. These tools allow many advantages for hunters. One of course is that the projectiles move faster than a hand-thrown spear. Any animal that is getting a projectile launched at it tends to want to move out of the way. 
Any bow hunter is aware of the freakish ability of animals such as deer to move before a fast arrow even hits them. A fast projectile also provides increased penetration, especially since atlatl darts can be made very thin. This is another benefit to the tool. Many light and thin darts can be carried around, effectively giving the Stone Age hunter more ammunition. The last main benefit would be that atlatl darts can be thrown much farther than a hand-thrown spear. It is understood that throwing javelins are only effective for hunting within about 30 meters, while atlatl darts are effective past 100 meters. Even though that these projectiles can be thrown far, the hunter would preferably throw these darts close to the target to preserve as much of the power as possible. Still, range is useful to target fleeing animals. There was once a misconception that atlatls were very inaccurate and had to be thrown in mass in order to get a kill, but this is false. The atlatl can be about as accurate as any other weapon with enough practice. Besides weapons, the people of the Folsom culture used a variety of other tools of bone and stone. Stone cores, which are essentially just big pieces of stone shaped into a clunky biface, were carried hundreds of miles from their source. Since the Folsom people were highly nomadic, they were able to use the best quality flint available to them. However, since these sources were hundreds of miles apart, the nomads had to efficiently utilize their stone. Large cores were carried around and flakes could be removed to be used as tools. These flakes had naturally sharp edges and could be resharpened quite a bit before being discarded. The core itself would have remained functional basically as a hand axe until enough flakes were taken off that these flakes could become too small to be used as tools themselves. This is the point that the core could be turned into a point, a biface, or another tool such as a scraper. Though the Folsom point gets all the shine, they also made ultra-thin bifaces that in some cases are just as impressive. These tools were essentially knife blades, though they were likely left unhafted and simply handheld. They are considered ultra-thin because they are typically 7 to 13 times as wide as they are thick. Some are even 20 times as wide as they are thick. This takes exceptional skill. This biface was made by Martin Reuter, one of the best snappers out there. Check out his channel. It is 14 times as wide as it is thick. Bifaces recovered at the Shifting Sand site in Texas measure over 4 inches in length and are only about a tenth of an inch thick. Few complete ultra-thin bifaces may have been found, though their fragments are littered throughout butchering sites. It appears that these tools would often snap due to the twisting and flexing involved with butchery. Questions arise concerning why they were made so thin just to break when used. Our remains display that these knives were heavily resharpened. If you have ever made a stone knife before, you know that the tool must be quite thin in order to pressure flake off a new sharp edge on it. If your tool is too thick, it can only be resharpened a few times before it is no longer usable. Think of creating a biface as basically creating a bevel and a regular knife. The thinner the bevel, the more it can be resharpened. So a thin and wide tool can be resharpened dozens of times before being discarded. It appears that the Folsom Nappers created these bifaces with the intention of long-term use. This would of course make sense considering they were very nomadic. Furthermore, their long and wide design made them perfect tools for cutting big chunks of meat. Dr. Peggy Jodry, the principal investigator of the Cattle Guard Folsom site, discovered through useware analysis that these tools were used for light butchering and meat cutting. She has speculated that these specialized tools, although brittle, were worthwhile for the laborious task of butchery. Butchering an entire bison or even large animals such as mammoth would have been a daunting task. The animal must be gutted, quartered, cut into manageable pieces, bones were smashed, some were turned into tools, while the hide was scraped for many hours and strips of sinew were surgically removed. Dr. Jodry also speculates that the thin biface tools may have been made and used primarily by women, while the male hunter would have primarily made the points. It is pretty fascinating to think that the Folsom people may have had a sexual division of flint napping. The last interesting thing about these bifaces is about their relation to the Clovis culture. Ultra-thin bifaces are found in some late Clovis sites and may be the predecessors to not only the bifaces found in some Folsom sites, but also in the site of the Cody Complex, another Paleo-Indian culture living on the plains alongside the Folsom culture. Folsom people may have also used blade core technology as the Clovis people did, but the evidence is quite sparse. The last aspect of their tools we should talk about is their osseous tool remains. Bone was used to some extent, but due to the nature of bone deteriorating over time, it is hard to assess how common these tools would have been. Points made of long bones, most likely from bison, but possibly from camel, were made. These long points could have offered deep penetration, whether thrown or thrust. 
Bone rods of an unknown function have been found at Folsom sites, which may have been related to bone rods used by the Clovis culture. This small bone bead was found stuck to the surface of a resharpening flake that was found in Area 6 of the Shifting Sand site in Texas. It likely would have not been found at all if it was laying loose in the sand. If there were other beads at this site, they were probably too small to be recovered with normal excavating techniques. An estimated date for the Folsom artifact would be approximately 12,000 years ago. Though it is just a simple bead, it may hint to a higher level of artistic expression in the Folsom tradition than we currently understand. At the Lindenmeyer site, the largest Folsom site ever discovered, additional symbolic elements can be found. Beads of bone, hematite, and coal have been found. They may be the oldest beads discovered in the Americas. Alongside some of these beads, etched bone discs were discovered. It is unclear what these discs were used for. The engravings on their edges may have been used to count something, or they were just simply for ornamentation. The discs may have been worn alongside the beads, though we can only speculate. Another amazing discovery at this site consists of a bison vertebrae with a Folsom point tip lodged into it. This site has proven pivotal in our understanding of the Folsom tradition. The last aspect of their culture that remains a profound mystery is if they had dogs. Dogs have long been thought to have accompanied the earliest migrations into the Americas. Though our oldest physical evidence dates back to 9,900 years ago from Illinois. Molecular clock analysis suggests that all Native American dogs have a common ancestor dating back to 14,600 years ago, just before the emergence of the Clovis. The findings suggest that dogs did indeed accompany not only Clovis, but also Folsom people. Considering we do not have skeletal remains of a Folsom person, it is not odd that we do not have remains of their dogs. Dogs are often overlooked when talking about Paleo-Indian times, though they may have played a very important role in the hunting of megafauna, protection of kill sites, and even carrying goods across vast landscapes. Now that we have a fairly deep understanding of the remains we have discovered from these people, we should discuss their way of life. During the Younger Dryas period, even though it was cold, the Great Plains and especially the High Plains had much more moisture than they do today. This allowed animals to move across the landscape freely, not restricted by sparse water holes. Animals such as bison, deer, pronghorn, and camelops, an extinct species of camel native to the Americas, would have traversed vast distances from spring to fall. Highly mobile herds would have been difficult to follow. This would have forced the Folsom people to be highly mobile themselves for most of the year. Though many other animals would have existed on the plains and in other regions, it still appears that they mainly targeted Bison Antiquus. Folsom sites suggest that their bands consisted of around 5 families, or on average around 25 people. The groups would have been capable of taking a few bison at a time with simple spot and stock hunting techniques. Small kill sites of between 3 to 6 bison are often found near watering holes on the plains. It appears that these attacks were ambushes and that they occurred at all times of the year. These carcasses appear to have been heavily processed to support the family band. Other sites tell a much different story. Larger kill sites contain between 30 to 60 animals. There is no way such a large quantity of bison were taken just by one group. Communal hunts were almost certainly a common tactic used by Folsom hunters. It appears multi-band groups would arrange a variety of complex hunts. Some sites indicate that bison would be driven into narrow ravines where hunters would lie in ambush. The Cooper's site from northwestern Oklahoma preserves not one, but three of these events in great detail. A total of 78 bison were killed associated with 33 Folsom points and six flake knives. Many of these Folsom points were found broken from impact damage, while some were found intact, such as this excellent example. The large flake knives that were used to butcher these beasts were also found to have been resharpened at the site, leaving over a hundred of these resharpening flakes. They were found lying dead next to each other on their stomachs. Cut marks on the ribs and thoracic spines suggest that only about 50% of the meat was taken from these carcasses while the rest was left to rot. This kind of butchering has been labeled as gourmet butchering by some researchers. Even though multiple bands may have been present, it appears that they acquired more than enough meat to sustain themselves. Considering there is no evidence of occupation, these people may have taken the meat elsewhere or feasted. These bison were all cows and calves, no bulls were present. This was because bison herds are actually divided by sex for most of the year. The story gets more interesting when it was discovered that an older kill layer sat beneath the first discovered and other large bison kill sites are also found nearby. 
This suggests to researchers that bands of Folsom were routinely using this site to kill large amounts of bison. By analyzing the wear on the teeth and the size of the calves, they were able to determine that all of these mass kill sites happened at the end of summer. By testing chemical signatures in the enamel of these bison, researchers were able to determine their migratory patterns. They moved horizontally across the plains, stopping in the mountains in the spring and going east for the winter. The Folsom people were of course aware of this, and cut them off before the fall. Another interesting discovery made at this site was the diversity in toolstone used to make the points. Projectile points made from cherts from central Texas, the Texas Panhandle, and northwestern Kansas may indicate that two or three Folsom groups combined forces to conduct these kills. Seasonal hunts such as this one may have been the glue that held Folsom traditions from quick deviation. The huge surplus of sustenance may have allowed these bands a time to come together as a community. A time to celebrate, to feast, to search for mates, or to conduct healing ceremonies. At the Cooper site, we do find evidence of possible ritual or symbolic behavior. In the earliest layer of the site, a bison skull was painted with what has been dubbed a lightning bolt among other drawings. Analysis of the paint proved that the composition of the intense red paint are not found in the surrounding soil. The skull was taken from the first kill site, painted with a red zigzag symbol, and then placed in the arroyo prior to the bison drive that led to the second kill site. This evidence may suggest that this skull was painted in some form of ritual to provide success for the next hunt. The skull is also the oldest evidence of painting in the Americas. The last interesting aspect about this site is that it lies right by a much older site. The Jake Buffalo site was also a bison kill site of a similar constitution. A herd of cows and calves was herded into an arroyo before being ambushed in the late summer. But this site is centuries older than the Cooper site, and the hunters were using Clovis points. This suggests that even as far back as Clovis times, these people understood how to hunt these animals seasonally. This may also suggest that this knowledge was retained through the Clovis to the Folsom transition, perhaps having implications about the possibility that the Folsom were the direct descendants of the Clovis. Another amazing Folsom site from southwest Texas speaks volumes to their communal hunting skills. The Bonfire Shelter site preserves the earliest buffalo jump site in the Americas. A layer called Bone Bed 2, which consists of as many as 120 bison antiquas remains, was created from at least three separate events, the earliest of which dates back between 11,500 to 12,000 years ago. Amazingly, Folsom points have been found at this site in the oldest layer. This discovery suggests that the Folsom people were the first to pioneer the buffalo jump. For those unaware, a buffalo jump is typically a cliff formation which buffalo are herded over to kill mass quantities of bison at one time. Native Americans used buffalo jumps even in post-Columbian times. Many tribes even claimed that every last buffalo had to be killed or else the stragglers would go tell the others about the horror they had witnessed. Herding buffalo towards a cliff edge at a time without horses was an extremely difficult and elaborate operation even in relatively recent times. The Crow Indians used a strategy which utilized the entire society. A runner or chaser would corral the unsuspecting animals towards a cliff edge where other hunters would be waiting behind trees and rock piles. The hunters would then scare and chase the animals towards the cliff edge. As the bison in the back unknowingly pushed their kin off of a cliff, the majority of the tribe was waiting at the bottom ready to dispatch, dismember, and devour the hairy brutes. Other tribes had methods of even higher complexity which were able to reportedly kill as many as 1,000 bison at a time. Even the death of 50 buffalo cows resulted in around 20,000 pounds or 9,000 kilograms of good meat. The natives would often try to use everything they could from these carcasses, but in situations of such excess, sometimes they would leave putrefied carcasses on the landscape with only their fat-rich tongues missing. Early European observers to these events ironically looked down on occasion, calling these activities indulgent. Regardless of any ethics involved, the fact that people who often used every last morsel of an animal were leaving the entire carcasses to rot testifies to the effectiveness of this hunting technique. It appears that Folsom people were engaging in this activity over 12,000 years ago and it is a testament to the innovation and expertise in their environment. Coercing bison to fall to their death may have required Folsom hunters to employ the swiftness and cunning of their well-trained dogs, the creation of bison decoys, and maybe long-range communication techniques. We only have one example of one buffalo jump dating to the Folsom period, though it is likely that there are more to be found. 
Regardless of which method they used to obtain their meat, it appears the culture was focusing on acquiring it. From their points to their bifacial knives, their technology focused on procuring and processing prey animals. But this certainly does not mean that they were strict carnivores. Berries, nuts, and root vegetables were certainly consumed. Unfortunately, since we do not have the remains of a fulsome person, we can't look at their toothware and find chemical signatures of what they may have ate. The proportion between meat and fruits and vegetables remains unknown. Regardless of how bountiful the relatively warm summer months would have been, the interrupting frosts of winter always dominated the lives of these people. For most of the existence of the Folsom people, the environment was exceedingly cold. They lived during a cold period and in cold environments such as high-altitude mountain refuges and the windswept plains. To survive such hostile conditions, they must have utilized fitted clothing and well-made shelters. Fine bone needles dating to the Folsom period have been found, indicating that they did indeed make well-made insulating clothing. They also hold the record for the oldest housing construction in the Americas. At the Barger Gulch site, we find the oldest houses in America. Discovered in 1995, the Barger Gulch site is a Folsom-style campsite located in western Colorado. Dr. Todd Suravel explains that this evidence suggests the patterns in artifact density could map out the walls of the house, revealing the inside and outside of the wall. Additionally, at Barger Gulch there are numerous artifact-dense hearths, Primitive hearths are one of the markers that indicates domiciles are present. The evidence suggests that conical shelters were made with hearths in the middle. Large poles may have been used to form TV-like structures, though we cannot be sure of any specific design. Barker Gulch is located at the bottom of a valley, insulated by the surrounding mountains. This site and others suggest that many Folsom bands would spend their winters in the mountains away from the windswept plains. Folsom mountain sites extend from New Mexico all the way to the southern Canadian Rockies. Though mountains are typically seen as cold regions, deep valleys can be unexpectedly warm and fertile. Humans were not the only ones privy to this. Other animals, such as the Folsom's favorite prey, often spent winter in these environments. At the Barker Gulch site, we often have an extensive record of flint napping. Dr. Todd Suravel and colleagues mapped over 14,000 artifacts at the site. Of course, most of these artifacts are waste flakes, but by mapping these flakes, they were able to also learn how these pieces were napped and even determine the skill of the nappers. The final product themselves, of course, can also tell us about their skills. What Dr. Surville found at the site was that many of the nappers actually seemed to have been novices. Originally, this came across quite strange considering that we know the Folsom nappers were so skilled. Dr. Suravel was able to catalog all the bifaces found at the site and compare them to the works of modern nappers of various skill levels from novice to expert. He was able to determine that the nappers at Barger Gulch certainly varied in skill, but him and his team also discovered even more insightful information. In one of the shelters they uncovered referred to as the main block, nearly all of the bifaces are very skillfully made. But in a shelter in the east block, the bifaces show a spatial segregation by skill, the nappers on the north side of the shelter were of low skill, while on the other side of the hearth, skilled nappers chipped away at their masterpieces. This spatial segregation almost certainly represents skilled adults teaching children how to flint nap. How amazing is it that we can confidently determine that nearly 12,000 years ago, Folsom people sat around this very hearth teaching their children the difficult art of flint napping. It is no coincidence that Barger Gulch is located near abundant sources of high-quality chert. Another thing to mention about flint napping in general is that the Folsom people appear to have chose the highest quality and often most aesthetically pleasing stone materials to work with. People outside of the flint napping world may not know this, but there are many stunning stone materials which only come from very specific locations. The Folsom people were aware of many of these deposits and traveled vast distances to access them. This Folsom Point made of marvelous Alabates chert from Texas was found all the way up in the Canadian province of Manitoba. That means that this point was carried over a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers from its source. I can see why too, it is a really beautiful point. Knife River Flint was another type of flint that was prized by the Folsom. This flint variety is primarily from North Dakota and is some of the highest quality in existence. It often has a smooth coffee color with white blotches and streaks running through it. Not only was this material highly functional, but it was quite decorative. Many other materials were utilized such as jaspers, agatized wood, tiger church, silicified mud, and even petrified wood. The aesthetic appeal of many of these points may indicate that they played a part in their ritual or religious beliefs. 
Some of the points are so thin and finely flaked that it almost appears like some Folsom nappers were showing off their skills. Points made of more exotic or aesthetic materials may have also been valuable items to trade or to reinstate social bonds between groups during sedentary winter periods. This may help to explain why they traveled so far to obtain such eye-catching material. Winter overall could have been a time to build and cement relations with other groups. The joy and laughter shared between these bands may have been essential to their communal hunting efforts. It was a time to mend clothes, produce tools, teach essential skills, but perhaps more importantly, to share stories, to share ideas, and to celebrate the culture which bound these bands together. Let's imagine a story around a Folsom campfire over 12,000 years ago. Around a central hearth, two elders are seated. Next to them stand their strong and proud descendants along with their quiet children. A story is told of a great hunt, one that occurred many years ago. Telling the story is the son of the great hunter himself. Now with a leather face, a bad limp, and a stoic demeanor, he recounts the day he could not forget. The bountiful summer of bison tongues and pronghorn livers was quickly ended with an autumn cold snap. For many moons, the band of twenty roamed. Being a young man at the time, our storyteller had to carry a dozen atlatl darts, a bag full of dried bison meat, and another bag full of stone. Traveling next to him at all times was his trusty canine who had been with him since he could walk. The dog was similarly burdened by warm hides strapped to his sides. His dog was one of twelve others that accompanied the tribe. While trained to guard dogs and pack hunters, they were useful to many aspects of their lives. The group trudged along shallow snow burdened by their gear. Having miscalculated the distance of the mountains, it would be another week or two of plains living before they would get a break from the wind. At night, small tents were put up utilizing the shafts of their larger thrusting spears as central beams and their atlatl dart shafts ringed around them to form small teepee-like structures. These were covered with various hides to block the howling winds. Low on food and fuel for their fires, the last few nights have been exceptionally cold. Everyone knew that they would need to harvest a bison or two along the way to the mountains or they may risk starvation. Every morning, our young hunter and the other nine hunters left camp to look for something to eat. But the women were the only ones able to catch a snowshoe hare and a dozen voles. Quick snacks, but hardly worth the calories gained. This morning, an elder of the tribe had decided it was not the lack of skill of the hunters, but a fault in their points. Analyzing our young hunter's point, the elder discovered a problem. His points were made of a pale crumbling shirt from one of their stops a few months back. Surely the bison would not give themselves up to such a meek material. It was decided that some of the prized agate from the mountains would have to be napped in order to persuade the bison. The elder called all to set up the central hearth and the tents around him. As he delicately prepared the biface, songs were sung and dogs whined. As the older man placed his bone-tipped tool upon the point and the song reached a crescendo, a snap was heard and a flake was released. It ran true, all the way to the tip. The crowd was pleased, but they knew that their fortune was not secured yet. As the master prepared the other side, the song slowly grew in volume. Once again he placed his mighty tool upon the point and the crowd's chance increased. A snap was heard, and a smile was seen on the napper's face. Another flake ran true, and the point was near completion. The crowd rejoiced. The bison would undoubtedly be entranced by such a beautiful point and give himself to even the meekest of hunters. A few more points were made of lower quality materials before the tribe packed up their stuff and headed off once again. Though burdened by the weight, it didn't feel as heavy anymore. Even though many days of walking lie ahead, they now knew that their prosperity was assured. The next morning, the hunters were greeted with a brewing snowstorm. It was dangerous to hunt in such conditions but their confidence was relentless. Fearing nothing, they set off. Hours of walking followed. Snow and frigid winds bombarded every surface of the hunter's ragged clothes. Visibility varied, but was never more than a spear's throw away. Various tracks were found, some rabbit, some deer, and some tracks they hadn't seen in years. Our hunter was too young to even remember the last time these tracks had been seen. 
but from stories he heard of their great bulk and fat-filled backs. The group was so enamored by the tracks that they had forgotten to look up. In front of them, one of the hunters pointed out that the mountains lie ahead. It couldn't be. They were many days' walks from the great hills. The other hunters did indeed see the white peaks, though they were covered in fur and moose-like heads accompanied them. The group crouched down and came up with a plan. They flanked the beasts on three sides. Two of the sides threw their atlatl darts in an initial barrage, which spooked the animals towards the bulk of the hunters, which stood waiting with ready atlatls and bone-tipped thrusting spears. Within moments, it was all over. The group of ten hunters managed to kill a total of fourteen of these creatures before it was all said and done. Rejoicing over their great feat, our meek hunter retrieved the point which had made the hunt possible in the first place. The dart had flown true and pierced both sides of the hulking beast. He untied the sinew wrap and placed the point in his pocket. It would remain a memento from his greatest day. The rest of the tribe came to the carcass and feasted for two whole days before heading off to their mountain refuge. The Folsom culture appeared during a period of turmoil that was the onset of the Younger Dryas 12,800 years ago. Their innovative toolkit would be used around the Great Plains and beyond for as much as 800 years. A 2016 study narrowed down this time period to the 440 years between 12,610 and 12,170 BP, though the authors said that they expect the range to expand on both margins. Either way, Folsom material became quite rare after about 12,1200 BP. This does not correlate with the end of the Younger Dryas period, which would occur around 500 years later. In the place of the Folsom toolkit was a variety of new tool traditions, many seemingly unrelated to their predecessors. In some regions it can clearly be seen that similar fluting techniques were conducted on new point designs. Many from the Great Plains and Mountain West appear to have done away with fluting altogether. Other cultures in the East fluted points in a seemingly unrelated fashion to the Folsom. They may have been even inspired by remnants of the Clovis tradition. The disappearance of Folsom technology and the appearance of unrelated tool complexes could be interpreted in a variety of ways. Did the Folsom people get outcompeted by new cultures that developed on the outer margins of their territory? The fact that the Folsom tradition lasted longest in the deep heartlands of the plains may support this. Did Folsom people altogether lose interest in fluting their points? This would mean that the actual people of the Folsom tradition never declined but rather transformed into new cultures. This hypothesis appears more likely. Whatever happened to the Folsom people, we know that after their dispersion, Paleo-Indians lived differently. Never again would one point design become so widespread. This may reflect the way that Paleo-Indian people lived. Instead of constantly following herds of migratory prey for hundreds of miles, people began to be content with living in individual regions. The cultures diversified and became quite distinct from one another. We assume that the Folsom people, likely similar to the Clovis before them, are related to modern Native Americans. Anzik I, an infant that the Clovis people buried around 13,000 years ago, is the only Paleo-Indian genome to be sequenced from North America. It was found that Anzik I's mtDNA belongs to the haplogroup D4H31. This founder haplogroup is thought to represent one of the earliest to migrate into the Americas. Interestingly, D4H3 genes are more common in South America, suggesting a complex genetic history dating back to Paleo-Indian times. Kennewick Man was a man who lived around 9,000 years ago in the state of Washington. Named the Ancient One by his descendants, both his Y-DNA haplogroup and his M-DNA haplogroup are found almost exclusively in Native Americans. As of now, we do not exactly know what relation the people of the Folsom tradition have to modern Native Americans. Considering their range was so large, it is likely that the Folsom people themselves were quite diverse, leaving the possibility that Native American groups from around North America and even Central and South America could have roots in the Folsom past. I should quickly mention that some people support the widely discredited Solutrean hypothesis. The hypothesis that Paleo-Indians actually crossed Atlantic ice from Europe. I will probably end up making a whole video on this topic, but basically the genetic, linguistic, and archaeological evidence does not support the hypothesis whatsoever. 
If you find yourself a proponent of this hypothesis, I have linked some sources below which skillfully dismantle it. The Folsom people undoubtedly have a relation to modern Native Americans and forever live on in the blood that flows through their proud descendants. The Folsom people, through their innovative spirit and mastery of their environment, have left an enduring legacy that resonates with us today. Their distinctive fluted points, monumental hunts, and resilient adaptation to changing landscapes illuminate a culture deeply connected to the natural world. George McJunkin, the ranch hand, amateur archaeologist, and formerly enslaved man, set in motion events that would change our understanding of the history of this great continent. As we reflect on the Folsom culture, we are left reminded of the enduring spirit of human exploration and ingenuity, continuing to inspire our understanding of the past and the ever-evolving story of our shared human heritage. We have no skeletal remains of a Folsom person, yet through their widespread remains we know that they existed, and we find that significant. Let's not remember the Folsom people solely for the remains that they left behind, but rather for their lasting legacy a story which we left behind. As temporary custodians of this world, we should strive to tell the chronicles of those who came before. For just like us, they are a chapter in the greatest story ever told. Thank you all for watching this video. I was amazed just how much information there was to learn about the Folsom culture. This video was even longer than my Clovis video somehow. I'm very optimistic that more Folsom discoveries will be made, hopefully some skeletal remains, with all respect to the wishes of their descendants, of course. If you enjoyed the video and want to see more, please consider liking, commenting, and subscribing to the channel. It's just me, a college kid in the Midwest, putting these together, so your support means the world to me. But I also want to thank some of the other people that helped make this video possible. I've included their links in the description down below. I want to thank you all one final time. This has been your host, North O2, and I'll see you on the next one. Arrivederci.